Welcome, welcome, welcome to another wonderful episode of The Gospel According to Stupid. I'm Johnny Waters, and this is my podcast, where I read the Bible from cover to cover. And uh, these last couple of episodes, last several episodes, at least for this particular chapter, have been wrought uh, with, with emails from a Jehovah's Witness person. Which is nice, because I'm having a very nice discussion, and I'm really finding out where I sit on this whole thing. Um, it only took a couple of years to get there, but hey. Um, thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. If you want to send off emails and questions and thoughts and concerns and things like that, please feel free to send them off to according to stupid at gmail.com, as well as you can find me on the Twitter sphere at accord to stupid, and you can find that in the description uh, for this podcast. Now, um, we finally got back to this person, um, and they got back to me. Uh, because last time I, I read their email and I kind of just left it wide open for, for anybody to kind of answer and just being like, all right, I'll answer it eventually. And and we'll see where that, uh, where that gets us. And that was pretty cool. Um, you know, just to kind of check and see and, and, and do all that. So they finally responded back, but I'm going to read my response to their original email that they sent, uh, like on Monday or whatever. And uh, then I have their response and I have my response again that I did this morning. So we have quite a bit of an email bit in this beginning. Uh, if you don't give a fuck, uh, I don't know, jump ahead 10 minutes and maybe I'll be through with that and whatever. Um, anyway, what I'll do, I'll reread their original email that they sent and then I'll start going through my stuff and then um, so on. Uh, yeah, that's how that'll go just so everybody can be on the same damn page every every episode, hopefully. Um, so, uh, they go, We've been having our regular Public Sunday discourses on Zoom while the virus is still around. The speaker was from this particular place. Um, I'd like to share some good points he brought out. Talking with his disciples, Jesus alerted them they would have problems, but just as Jesus conquered the world, they could also. John sixteen thirty one to thirty three. By this we believe that you came from the God, from God. His disciples addressing Jesus. Jesus answered them, "Do you believe now? Look, the hour is coming. Indeed, it is come." When each of you will be scattered to his own house, and you will leave me alone. But I am not alone, because the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, so that by means of me you may have peace. In the world you will have the tri- in the in the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have conquered the world. While on earth Jesus left a model for us, both by his ransom of humans and by our seeing how he conducted himself while on earth. As Jesus trained his disciples, they did just so. He told them they would be hated. Matthew twenty two thirty seven to forty, you must love Jehovah your God with your whole heart and with your whole soul and with your whole mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. The second, like it, is uh, is is this: you must love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, the whole law hangs, and um, and made God's name known. John seventeen three. This means everlasting life. They're coming to know you the only true God, and the one whom you sent, Jesus Christ. And, John seventeen twenty six. I have made your name known to them. Uh, I have made your name known to them. Hold on. I think I... Uh, I have made your name known to them and will make it known, so that the love and uh, with which you loved may be uh, in them and I in union with them. 
This is how Jesus' disciples conquered the world and how we can too. Notice how Paul felt. Uh, Roman, uh, Romans 8, 37, 39. On the contrary, in all these things, we are coming off completely victorious through the one who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor governments, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creation will be able to separate us from God's love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul believed that no one will be able to separate us from God through our love and faith in Jehovah. Next email will help us see the, uh, how we can be victorious over the ruler of this world, Satan. So that was the first email. That was the thing that was sent on uh, Monday. Uh, and we'd had a, a, a bit of a, a, a lull um, in all of this. Uh, so I responded, uh, hey, glad to hear from you again. This first quote is pretty good. It is very timely, uh, I think, uh, what with COVID and people being in their own homes. A sense of reassurance I can get behind. The end of it may be a bit of a question, though, because you say that Satan is running the world, but Jesus here says he's conquered it. Has he conquered it in his time here, or is it a future thing? The quote seems to imply that his being on earth is enough to conquer the place. Which, good for him, but I suppose after the crucifix, Satan went back to running the place? A small 33-year intermission on Satan's rule, right? Ransom of humans. Can you explain that further? The loving Jehovah slash God with your whole heart, soul, and mind sounds to me to be a tall order. Let me quote another piece of literature. King Lear, Cordelia, Act 1, Scene 1. Unhappy that I am, I cannot heave my heart into my mouth. I love your majesty, according to my bond, no more, no less. Good, my lord, you have begot me, bred me, loved me. I return those duties back as our right fit, obey you, love you, and most honor you. Why have my sister's husbands if they say they love you all? Happily, when I shall wed, that lord whose hand must take my plight shall carry half my love with him, half my care and duty. Shall I? Sure, I never... Hold on. Sure, I shall never marry like my sisters, to love my father all. Are you familiar with this passage? It's quite a good play. I don't mean to spoil it, but it ends very sadly. I think this brings up a good point, that if you only have room for Jehovah, then what life do you have? True, you can write this off as snarky and dismissive and maybe even a dig against her own two evil sisters. But you have to wonder that if everything you give to the Creator, then what do you have for anyone else on earth? Those he also created. If you are to love him all, then what of those he may or may not have created for you to interact with? What neighbors can you give love to when you have no love to give yourself at all, since you've given all to God? If this is all true, then this might be what is leading us all to be a little nasty to each other. We, have locked, uh, we are locked into our homes, getting hated on for one thing or another on the outside and inside, sometimes, and having no love for ourselves but for the Almighty. We have nothing to give out to others. I'm looking up the first commandment, and it says, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other gods but me. But I have the second one as the Lord's name in vain bit. There's a lot about neighbors, I'm realizing, but nothing here in the commandments that says we have to love our neighbor. Maybe Jesus says it. Not bear false witness, lust after neighbor's wife, covet of thy neighbor's house, etc. So maybe it was Jesus, a Jesus thing and not a commandment thing, which, fine and fair. 
But you'd think they would have put that earlier if Jesus was helping his father with the whole creation bit, which I'm not too sure is right. But again, what do I know? I do agree uh, a bit with the John 17, 26, uh, that you get what you put into it. Can't deny that's a good thing, I suppose, as a lesson in life. That is reassuring that nothing can separate us from God's love. This might have been also Paul's belief and hopefully a true one, too. I still have to question hell, then. If God is all-loving, then can he truly punish anything he loves for eternity? It sure is reassuring to a poor sinner like me. I'm excited. Bring on the next email. John. So they responded. John, Jesus came to earth to redeem mankind for Adam's sin. This is starting to sound real familiar. If Adam didn't sin, there would have been no need for him uh, to offer his perfect life. Jesus conquered the world in the sense he died faithful, and Satan wasn't able to turn Jesus against his father Jehovah. Remember Satan trying to get Satan to do one act of worship to him? We also can conquer this world as we know it today under the influence of Satan. I don't know if they meant that. That's why Jesus told his disciples to take courage, that he conquered the world, and they could too with Jehovah's help. Holy Spirit. If Jesus hadn't proven faithful unto death on the, tor on the torture stake, the ransom would have been successful. The ransom wouldn't have been successful, excuse me. Uh, John, when, I, uh, when it was Jehovah's time to set up his heavenly kingdom in 1914, he couldn't tolerate Satan or his demon hordes to be present, so they were cast down to the vicinity of the earth. When Adam and Eve were perfect, they could communicate directly with the Almighty. When they sinned, they were cast out of Eden. At that point, humans need a ransomer to be able to have a relationship with their Creator, the Almighty. So when we have, uh, when we have, when we approach Jehovah in prayer, we do it through Jesus or in His name. When Jehovah sets up that heavenly kingdom here on earth, after His war at Armageddon, and at the end of a thousand years, humans will face a final test. That is why Satan will be abyssed and let out after the thousand years to try to mislead humans. Scripture tells us that some will succumb to Satan's attacks. Those that pass the test will be perfect again and be able to approach Jehovah without Jesus' ransom sacrifice. Jehovah does not torture humans in what many churches teach as hellfire. He will permanently destroy Satan and his hordes. Does this help? I'll answer your other questions or thoughts in another email. And this is a very lengthy response. So you may, if you've made it this far and you're like, oh, fuck, I, uh, he told me to wait till I get to the 10-minute mark and, and so on. Well, you might want to wait to the 20-minute mark because I went a bit into this. And maybe I just didn't get a whole lot of sleep, but I felt, you know, a little wryly about it. Um, these are helpful remarks for sure, I say. But we seem to go in some circles, it seems. While I can agree to the fact, faith-filled fact, I suppose, that Adam and Eve were our perfect, they could, converse, uh, they could converse themselves with the Almighty, but again, we seem to forget the context in which all of this is placed. We have, to question, we have the question of free will, if it truly exists, or if we are simply easy-tempted creatures of God. We could argue back and forth whether Satan is to blame for the whole convincing business or God for even putting such an awesome tree in the garden and giving his own sort of temptation to our first kin. I mean, you see a sign that says wet paint or do not touch. Aren't you a little tempted to touch it just to, just to see what happens? Uh, I grammatically did that wrong. Whoops. Now, 
now that I think about it, the whole first lesson seems to be say no sometimes, especially to your friends or your wife. I can assume Eve was such. I heard some rumor or thought that Eve was tempted, not necessarily with the fruit of the tree, but that uh, was a metaphor for sex. While I can get behind the theory, and I'm sure Adam would too, it does lend itself to an inciting incident that may have been a bit more than just taking a stroll to the forbidden fruit aisle. I think Jesus had a leg up on this whole worshipping Satan bit. If your dad was the creator, and in your previous emails you said he basically stood at the side and watched his father work, not unlike a young man watching his dad work under the hood of a car, gotta commend the devil for being ballsy enough to see if Jesus would turn against his father. But the offer was there through the trials and tribulations. Do you know when Satan gave that offer? Was Jesus a teenager? Having to go through human biology probably had its ups and downs, especially when you can yell to your stepdad that he's not your real dad in a literal sense. Harsh to be sure for poor Joseph. Mary, too, I think, got a surprising end of that particular stick, too. So, this gets me to the point I wanted to make, and I don't make that point, I make it a little later. If Jesus says he conquered the world, and they would, too, with Jehovah's help, right? Seems a little selfish in some ways. I understand it's a come-with-me-if-you-want-to-live sort of deal, and that it should be taken that way. But I can also see it as Jesus knew he'd be fine, and that if these other folks would follow, they would drink from the Kool-Aid too. As I recall, several of them didn't meet their end. Uh, uh, as I recall, several of them didn't meet their end well shortly uh, thereafter. The price of being a martyr, I suppose. So here's the thing. Does Satan run the joint or does Jesus? Or is a uh, join Jesus and then we will conquer, adding a bit more to the cost of faith that you're asked to purchase from the beginning and that you can believe, but you gotta follow further on down the line. I guess it keeps people on the hook, right? If Jesus came and saved everyone and conquered the world, then really, what should we truly fear, especially if the matter was solved 2,000-some years ago? And again, Jesus had to prove faithful to his own father? Why all these tests? Why these especially tough tests that still result in the death of your own son? I doubt any father would pull, could pull that trigger, or should for that matter. Now, I can get behind the idea that this was all part of the plan, that God would have to sit Jesus down and tell him he had to die in order to prove himself among with, uh, among with other great myriad of other miracles on top of them, and then to be quotable on top of that. But he did die for the sins of everyone, right? I've heard some analogy of Jesus' sacrifice, that imagine a teacup with tea in it. You put a napkin over the top, covering the tea. It conceals the whole of it. The same idea is for one's sin. God can see you, the teacup, but since the napkin, which is Jesus' sacrifice, is covering the tea, your sin, you are good to go. And some say that you get into a, a long queue of a line to the pearly gates, get shown your sins, and are judged one way or the other. Which do you lean? Still feels odd to me that there had to be a sacrifice in the first place. All of this seems to be like a roundabout way to solve the issue, which I'm still wondering what that was. That the Romans took Jerusalem? That we have a second Egypt of sorts, and that this is a bigger let-my-people-go thing? And Ransom sounds so much like a kidnapper and thief way to view this whole event. One perfect being for all of Earth. Is that a fair trade? Would it not be better to leave him here? Have God work his magic and lightning bolt anybody who got in Jesus' way? Wouldn't be loving, sure, but would keep the question of faith out of the equation. 
For that matter, why not have a supremely provable God? The book is one thing, but these days uh, we have to take it all on faith. To further this, why wait a little under 1900 years to step up your game just when the First World War was happening? He can tolerate a lot in the amount of time, in that amount of time, a plague or two for sure, and yet a wider spread war than ever before, and he opens his blind eyes? Seems suspect to me that it was just an event and not God's way, uh, God's, um, uh, God's war, unless God's war, which maybe the timeline is wrong, is against Nazis, in which case I am all for it. It feels very American to me, and that appeals to me for sure. But why do you think God took his sweet time? Was he pacified in the Renaissance with all those paintings and statues? I can't speak for the first 1,500 years, but this God works pretty slowly when, in the Old Testament, he seems to work pretty fast. Only at the end of Second Kings, so I'm making strides. Anyway, a ransomer. Before there were prophets and such, too, that could speak to God or just heard the will of God. Solomon, I think, talked to God directly, as well as some of the other kings. David comes to mind, I think. Some faiths believe you can just go to a priest, and he's the medium. I can understand why, on some level. Much like theater, we have to fill seats, and church is no different. Get them coming back and put on a good show, and this story is apparently the greatest story ever told. Still skeptical myself, but I haven't gotten to Jesus or even Joni yet, so I'm not entirely fully informed. As far as I can see, I'm still in Act 1, of a very long story. So I guess the question is this, can anyone be a ransomer? And does he or she take a toll? Sounds like they do with that, it sounds like they do with that terminology. You want your prayer to get to heaven? How much is it worth to you? If not anyone, then, uh, if not anyone, then was it just Jesus? And if that's the case, then why pray at all when we need a ransomer to be the middleman slash person? If it's a falling on deaf ears because God won't send down his second son or another ransomer, it doesn't make much sense to pray, does it? But maybe some of the more pure-of-heart ones get through, or the more badass ones like Conan to Krom. But even he said he had no time for it and made his own stand and won. But you say it's through Jesus. And in his place, in the heavenly kingdom, he gets all of the prayers that he forwards to God. Another price for faith that Jesus is even listening. One can hope he is, and I guess that's the point of prayer, right? Calling on a higher power to hopefully fix things or help them along. I've certainly done it at times, and I don't know if it got through to the sun. But maybe it's the thought that counts, and the act of asking that gets you motivated. You have a goal that you've said, and you can take action on that. Look over Billy. Well, I guess I could play catch with him, check on him a little. Even if God doesn't, at least maybe I'm doing the Lord's work. Thankfully, maybe we're, they're one and the same. And the same, excuse me. So back to timelines again. We have God's heavenly kingdom here on earth. However that looks, I imagine a big castle or something, a lot of cloudy mist. War with Armageddon? Don't know how lengthy that will be, but might take a minute or two. Satan gets abyssed for a thousand years, then what? A thousand years pass, and we humans face a final test, presumably when Satan comes back, finding a flashlight and the ladder out of the abyss. So even if I look outside right now, I still have a war and a thousand years of waiting for God to take my number? Why the wait? What's the waiting for, and why wait for it? And why do something, as you say, about the First World War and not about World War II or the Holocaust? Is God only there for the first bit and then Irish exits before the party really gets started? 
I don't mean to belittle the deaths of millions of people, but I do have to question a loving God who you said did something in 1914 and then left the bigger deal still on the table for us to solve. And then to come down here, have his own war, which will take who knows how long, and wreck my nice lawn that I've just gotten where I almost really love it, and then leave me on read for another thousand years? My bones will be dust, and I imagine my spirit slash soul will be bored with nothing to do but wait for God to get a damn move on. And even so, will the war kill everyone, or is it ascendance? That rapture business that just undercuts the covenant that he would not destroy the human race since Noah. But even so, what happened to all those souls that were drowned during that particular outburst? That near hard reset. And what is this test? God or hell? Choice is easy, right? If I wait a thousand years after my death to walk up to the throne and, uh, and am given the choice, then it's pretty simple. But you also have sight and not faith to go by at that point. And yes, we should work by faith and not sight, but I found sight to be a bit more reliable. Not to say that faith cannot be rewarded and won't be, but it does put a lot on the table. Imagine you get to the end and it isn't Jehovah, rather Zeus or Ra or any number of other bygone gods. What then? Is that the test to stay to your faith, renounce what you see and proclaim the Almighty before another very scary, potentially real other god? So really, at the end of everything, Satan comes back, gets destroyed over a thousand years, he's done. So no hell. What about these non-believers? Maybe those who didn't side with Satan, but really didn't pick one or one of the others. Get spit out because they're lukewarm? As I recall, Satan is the one who does the torturing, right? Or at least houses the damned, which, if you're there for eternity, it's either punishment, serving, and then eventual total obliteration. Gloomy placed in the gloomy pace in play ah, fuck! Gloomy place in the best of days. Why not just do away with him when he's sent to the abyss, or maybe I'm reading this wrong. Regardless, I have some time, you gotta admit. And the possibility of speaking one-on-one -on -one with the Almighty would be nice, but I bet I could settle for an FAQ board on the outside of his domain. It's not a bad reward, but I can probably knock out what I need to ask in the first couple hours, and then what the hell do I do in heaven? I don't know if it helped, but I'm getting a better idea every email. I look forward to your next one. So those were, so far, the emails that we've been sending back and forth, and it's been a, it's been a, a bit of a fun trial, for sure, with um, what's going on. Um, anyway, we're going to move on to uh, Second Kings. We are on chapter 20. We've got a couple episodes left before we get to the end of uh, Second Kings, and uh, we see what happens. Um, so yeah, what do you guys think? Send me an email. See what you, uh, uh, I want to see what you guys think. Maybe something real cool is really actually brewing underneath all of that stuff. Um, so last time, uh, we, we have a lot of kings coming and going. Um, the Assyrians show up and they're like, we're going to fucking take Jerusalem. Fuck you and fuck your God. Um, and God gets uh, asked to be like, help us, I guess. Um, and an angel comes down and uh, fucking kills everybody over there. And uh, it works out. Um, it's a bummer that it takes that long, but, um, you know, what are you going to do? Seriously. Um, it's kind of a bummer that way, but it, that's how it goes. So mostly we're just dealing with, with, uh, you know, 
the succession of kings and, and things like that still. Um, and hopefully it, it doesn't all just culminate in uh, Chronicles, but we'll, we'll fucking see. Um, chapter 20, everybody turn to kingjamesbibleonline.org and uh, we'll get this reading. Uh, chapter 20, in those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. Hmm, bummer. And the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amaz, came to him and said to him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Oh, what? And he turned his face to the wall, and prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth, and with a perfect heart, and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. We hope he's doing the Lord's work, because it seems like everybody before him was like, yeah, you're kind of not doing it. And it came to pass, before Isaiah uh, was gone out into the middle court, and the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Turn again, and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will heal thee. On the third day thou shalt go up unto the house of the Lord, and I will add unto thy days fifteen years, and I will deliver thee and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. Well, I imagine David's been like, hey, fucking do something. Um, this is not what we bargained with, buddy. Um, so he, <laughs> he, he's like, all right, you, you, you help me out. We're going we're gonna to have this cyclical thing of you are going to go up to this place in three days uh, and you're going to live for another 15 years. It's going to be great. And Isaiah said, uh, take a lump of figs. And they took and laid it on the boil and he recovered. Oh, well, so there's a, he had a big-ass pimple, I guess. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I shall go up into the house of the Lord the third day? And Isaiah said, This sign shalt thou have to the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing that he hath spoken. Shall the shadow go forward ten degrees, or go back ten, deg ten degrees? I, I don't, uh, the shadow of the, um... Uh, okay. I don't, I, don't ask me. You're the guy who's actually talking to him. And Hezekiah answered, uh, It is a light thing for the shadow to go down ten degrees. Nay, but let the shadow return backward ten degrees. I don't really understand. And Isaiah the prophet cried unto the Lord, and he brought the shadow ten degrees backward, and which, uh, by which it had gone down in the dial of Ahaz. Okay, so he's like, uh, can we get some more proof? And the sun moved a bit, quite a bit, 10 degrees, which, you know, is noticeable, especially for a shadow. Um, it would essentially be like he moved the clock an hour forward, I guess. Right? Ish? Um, maybe an hour and a half. And Hezekiah answered, It is a light thing for shadow, blah, 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 blah. And Isaiah the prophet cried unto the Lord, and he brought the shadow 10 degrees backward, by which it had gone down in the dial of Ahaz. So, forward and back. At the time, uh, Barodak Bala, Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, oh my god, all the bees, uh, sent letters and a present unto Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. Hey, thanks, buddy. And Hezekiah hearkened unto them and shewed them all the house of his precious things, the silver and the gold and the spices and his precious ointment, and all the house of his armor, and all that was found in his treasures. And there was nothing in his house, nor in all his dominion, that Hezekiah shewed them not. 
Then came Isaiah the prophet unto king Hezekiah, and said unto him, What said these men? And from whence came they unto thee? And Hezekiah said, They are come from a country, even from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in thine house? And Hezekiah answered, All the things that are in mine house they have seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shewed them. And Isaiah said unto Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. You didn't show him the fucking pog collection. I fucking gave you piece of shit. Fucking die. And lions show up. I don't know. Probably. Uh, Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and uh, that which thy fathers have laid up in store unto this day shall be carried into Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. Well, fuck you. You're going to heal me just so you can sell my fucking kingdom? And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away. And they shall be eunuchs in the uh, palace of the king of Babylon. Oh, that's not good. Then said Hezekiah unto Isaiah, Good is the word of the Lord which thou hast spoken. And he said, Is it not good if peace and truth be in my days? Okay. And the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might and and how he made a pool and a conduit, Okay, and brought water into the city. Are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? Probably. And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh, his son, reigned in his stead. So he gets this prophecy of like, hey, by the way, I healed you, but uh, Babylon's going to take shit. They're just going to do it. So God ultimately goes like, hey, I can't help you. He like dumbs himself down, which I wonder somehow down the line, does how does this work out? But I'm excited. Chapter 21. Here we go. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem. Damn. So, he, what, 60 and 7? And his mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, of course, after the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he reared up altars of, for Baal, and made a grove, as did Ahab king of Israel, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served them. So uh, so he made a Baal thing, and then he served, but you know, making the Baal thing was probably not a good thing. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. Okay. And he built altars for all the host of heaven uh, in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he made his son pass through the fire and observed times and used enchantments and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. He wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Weird that he doesn't, God doesn't punish wizards and shit more often. And he set a graven image of the grove that he had made in the house, of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. Neither will I make the feet of Israel move any more out of the land which I gave their fathers, only if they will observe and do according to all that I have commanded them, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. Nice little byline there, being like, I will not do anything so long as you keep fucking serving. But it was not can you fucking stop serving, especially serving the main guy up there, not the people, the king. Because if all the people are like, hey, man, like, <laughs> I'm still worshiping God over here. Um, God could give a fuck, apparently. He wants to punish the king and everybody. So he has like a like a, a cone shaped just um, retribution <laughs> for people. Uh, which is why I'm probably like, this seems wrong. Um, but they hearken not, and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than did the nations from uh, whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel, which 
<laughs> Sounds funny to me. Before I destroyed you guys, you were doing a bunch of fucking evil shit. You keep fucking coming back, much like the fucking Philistines. And the Lord spake by his servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, hath done these abominations, and hath done wickedly above all that the Amorites did, which I think they're still around, which were before him, and hath made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such evil upon Jerusalem and Judah, that, once, that whosoever heareth of it, uh, both his ears shall tingle. Well, that doesn't sound so bad. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria, and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as a man wipeth a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Ooh. And I will forsake the remnant of mine inheritance, and deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies, because they have done that which was evil in my sight, and have provoked me to anger, since the day their fathers came forth of Egypt, even unto this day. So God's pissed again. Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much, until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, beside his sin wherewith he made Judah to sin, in which that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He killed innocent people? He made a, he made a thing, but uh, I don't think he killed a bunch of people. Now, the rest of the acts of Manasseh, and all he did in his sins, that he sinned. Are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? I don't fucking know. And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden with his own people, his own house, excuse me, uh, in the garden of Uzzah. And Ammon, his son, reigned in his stead. Oh. Ammon was twenty and two years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. Ooh. And his mother's name was uh, Meshulamath, uh, the daughter of Haruz of Jotbah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father Manasseh did. So he's following father like son. And he walked in the way uh, that his father walked in, and served the idols that his father served, and worshipped them. And he forsook the Lord God of his fathers, and walked not in the way of the Lord. And the servants of Ammon conspired against him, and slew the king in his own house. So you see, some people are, you know, apparently okay. But they might have been doing it for bad reasons. I don't know. But it seems like if we're killing the guy who's gonna fuck us, we're doing an okay job. Uh, and the people of the land slew all them. Fuck. That had conspired against King Ammon. So we only have a couple of good people, apparently, as far as we can tell. And the people of the land of Josiah, the son, king in his stead. And the land made Josiah, his son, king in his stead. Nito. Now, the rest of the acts of Ammon. written your book of Chronicles in your king of Judah. And he buried in this sepulchre the garden of Uzzah, and Josiah, his son, reigned in his stead. Yippee. Well, that was, uh, that's our episode. So we have pretty much the same sort of shit of just more God getting angry, more God promising to kill more people, and um, it's probably not going to end terribly well because these threats are not, you know, not working out terribly well. And um, also, he's, God is, once again, very slow at making his promises of, like, your son shall be eunuchs in fucking Babylon. Um, <laughs> you know, like... Uh, why, why wait? Why are we waiting for these things? You know, if we have like, just what does this serve anybody to to wait? And maybe that's the point. You know, do good now or do your thing now, as opposed to you know waiting for 
the right moment and stuff, because God clearly won't, is waiting for his own time, and it's probably not your generation, and it's probably going to be people who are running places. Because uh, it seems here, in the Old Testament at least, God is only really concerned with the people that are running the damn place and punishing everybody under that particular flag. Which makes things a little easy when you're just like, oh, he's fucking up the whole town? Fuck everybody. Um, so it's really unfair. But it might be the sight that God takes us all in, I guess. But if that's the case, then he doesn't judge us individually, and I can't really go for that. Unless, you know, hopefully the person in front of the line, you know, first in line is a real good guy, and just everybody in that straight line is, hey, all of you, well done. Hey, come on in. But then you get into another line and be like, are you a good guy? You, you, the, the, is the front of the line guy real good? Otherwise, I'm going to hop over, like in, like in a fucking grocery store. Um, <laughs> see now fast the cashier. Uh, work stuff, you know. Um, so there's that. <laughs> uh, anyway, thank you all for listening. Uh, I'll probably have another episode for you on Monday or earlier next week. Uh, thank you for listening. Please send me an email or rate this thing. Um, and uh, you've been gospel to by the stupid. <laughs>